0: The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Good to see the five o'clockers out. If I had my choice, I would be at the five o'clock service. I just want to tell you that right now. Uh, So another role I have at uh, TBC is junior high pastor. So if any of you have any fifth through eighth graders, really fifth through twelfth graders, we're st- we have started back up on Wednesday nights, not Sundays, but Wednesday nights, and we'd love to see you guys out there. Uh, this Wednesday, we'll be out there at six thirty, right outside the Outback, and uh, I believe the high school will be over Creekside Building. So, love to see you there. So, we are continuing our series in First Corinthians four, and one note also for next week uh, in chapter five. If you go home and read it, not with your kids, but if you. Go and read it. Uh, you'll see there's some a uh, little bit of graphic content there. So for next week, might want to just think about uh, the kiddos and how much they take in of that. Uh, as we're not really skipping over passages in First Corinthians, so just check that out for yourselves and make a decision as a as a family there. So First Corinthians four is where we're at tonight. Um, It's a a powerful passage on um, evaluation. I call it evaluation. If you want to say negative things, you can call it criticism. Uh, But we're going to try to be positive tonight. We're going to call it evaluation. I might call it criticism a few times, but this is what we're looking at tonight. Growing up as the youngest of four children and having words of affirmation as my highest love language, I often found myself competing for attention recognition, praise, any scrap of a prize that I could get. I was all about getting noticed because I wanted people to see that I could do the things that my older siblings could do or maybe even do things that they couldn't do and maybe even do them better. And so I was kind of always fighting for that attention, fighting for whatever it is I could get my hands on as far as recognition goes. And this led me to seek out ways to make myself look better while demeaning others around me and their accomplishments. I don't know if any of you are like that out there where, you know, over the years, you've you kind of built yourself up to, to be something or to do something, and not only that, you not only want to be great at it, but you also want to stomp the competition and just, like, make them look bad. And that's kind of how I was and sometimes how I am, unfortunately, even now. It also created issues in evaluating others And I know I'm just confessing up here myself and nobody else in here struggles with this, but apparently the Corinthian church did. So we're gonna look at it this uh, this evening. Uh, In 1 Corinthians chapter four, let's check out verse one through seven. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Let's pray. Dear God, uh, this is such a, a powerful passage, a convicting passage, Lord, and I just pray that you will speak to us tonight. Allow the Holy Spirit to work in our hearts and push us and change us to be more like you and be better representatives of uh, who we call ourselves to be. For those that may not know you here, Lord, I pray that they will hear these words and trust in you as their Savior tonight. In your name we pray, Amen. So as we can see in the first part of chapter 4, snap judgments, know-it-all culture, minimal praise going on is kind of popular in this Corinthian church. There's a lot of things going on and we see it in the Corinthian church and their struggle of evaluating other people and how they did it poorly, but it really goes back to the beginning of time as we know it. Adam and Eve, you look at Cain and Abel and how they evaluated each other and it didn't turn out really well. So you see a problem that exists from the beginning of time. Evaluation is actually a systematic determination of a subject's merit, worth, and significance using criteria governed by a set of standards. Now if we call ourselves Christians, the set of standards that we should have in evaluating is this right here. The word of God. Not opinion, not things that we think should happen or emotion, But this right here, which is God's word. But unfortunately, as we go in life, and as we grow, and as we mature, and even as we learn new things, we decide that we can become evaluators, and oftentimes evaluators apart from scripture. And it sets us up for failure, and it sets us up to be just thrown about by all different doctrines that come and go, and opinions that come and go. Let's think about two of these many ways we can make mistakes when it comes to evaluation. First of all, self-appointed authority. Self-appointed authority. Author and commentator Stephen Um puts it this way, all of these issues are derived from self-appointed authority, viewing oneself as the ultimate authority on an issue and failing to recognize that evaluating authority lies elsewhere. Do we make ourselves the ultimate authority? Instead of bowing and submitting to the one who is the authority and twisting scripture and taking it out of context so that it fits us and suits us and makes it okay for whatever we decide we want to do contrary to scripture. But also another mistake is trusting, adopting, and espousing the evaluation of others. We've unfortunately become people who often don't take the time to think for ourselves Instead, we find someone who might be popular or maybe among circles of friends, someone who actually speaks truth in a way but says it in a way that maybe doesn't honor God, but because they say it, we espouse it and just get behind it and regurgitate it. Without any thought that there could be error in their message, we gravitate to them, we get behind them, and then we go all in with their message, when the reality is we might want to just take a step back and say these people are human too, right? These people are sinful people too. So to put all our eggs in one basket and all our, our force behind one person and just go after whatever they say is a big mistake. And it doesn't represent Jesus As stated earlier, growing up the way I did with the personality I was blessed or my wife might say it was cursed with, I found myself evaluating others often. What I realize now is that this self-appointed role was not just to make me look better, but was also to take the microscope, microscope off of me or the spotlight off of me and put it on someone else. Now my boys do this a, a lot where it's I got one of them saying, but what about him and he's doing this, right? I know none of you can relate, but the reality is we do these things, right, where we, we not only want ourselves to make, make us look better, but we also try to shift. We try to shift over to someone else who may not be cu- cutting it the way we are, right, and kind of have that spotlight off of us. But the reality is that we are all under a microscope. And some of us feel that weight more than others. We can see this, obviously, in the rise of social media, the rise of the internet and all these things that we have at our disposal, whether it's Google or whether it's Instagram, whether it's Twitter, Facebook, all these different things. You you think about the rise of this. And and oftentimes I, I see it as a blessing because we can reach a lot more people and really get the message of the gospel out. I was talking to a friend of mine in Rwanda in a remote village last week with his mom and sister, and I was talking to them on my phone. Technology is amazing. I was doing it on, on, on a Facebook video, which was awesome. So, technology isn't necessarily evil, but the things that are coming up and the active users that we see can unfortunately be. Uh, swayed in different ways when it comes to evaluation. Facebook has 2.45 billion active users. Social media at large has 3.8 billion active users and there's only 7.8 billion people in the world. So you look at that rise and I'm sure if I gave the same message next year, probably another billion at the way technology advances. And so... The reality is I, I, I just see it very clearly in my own life, in my kids' lives, in their friends' lives that we're all under this microscope. And we're all being evaluated constantly to the point that you can't turn yourself off. You can't just, like, we were talking last night, hanging out with some friends, and we remember back in the day when you're around your friends and you were hanging out with them, but at least you could go home and turn it off, right? You could shut down, you're not around anybody, you could be yourself and just chill but now it's like I'm still on, right? I posted something, I said something, I tweeted something, I gotta see who liked it, who dislo- who didn't like me, who, uh, and I get so consumed by this, right? And I can't switch it off. And sometimes even in your sleep you're thinking about it, right? You're dreaming about social media when you're not even awake. I mean, it's just, uh, it's just such a powerful, powerful thing. And it's for us a challenging thing because we're all under this microscope and it adds extra levels of anxiety, depression, and just general thoughts of never measuring up to family, friends, and even strangers. So what do we do with this? What is the solution here that we can look to? And I would say there's a few things that we can look at in 1 Corinthians here that'll help us? What if we decided to be evaluated and to evaluate others differently? What if we fully pursued and embraced Scripture to the point that our our evaluations of others and ourselves looked revolutionary to the world? That the way we looked at others, the way we talked about others, the way we uh, tweeted at, at one another, commented, all these things, what if it actually just Revolutionize the way the world sees believers. We can see some of these suggestions here in 1 Corinthians 4. There's five things that a godly outlook on evaluation will do for us. And the first one we can look at is it will give us an attitude of self-giving service Instead of self-appointed authority, look at verse one and two. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. Paul describes himself and others as servants of Christ. The first thing he says in this chapter it's difficult to be prideful and evaluating others in a negative way when the first stance you take and the first posture you take toward others is a servant. What a great thing to aspire to be a servant of Christ. Christ. And Paul was simply following the example that Jesus set for him. He writes in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 8, "...have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." Here's a good question for you. Are you known more for your opinion than your service? Are you known more about the things that you want people to know about you or what you think about things than the way you serve others? Because when I read this passage this week, it was a gut punch for me in a lot of different ways, which we're gonna see. But the reality is oftentimes I just want people to know what I think before even thinking about how I can serve them and love them. He also mentions the word faithful. You look around at well-respected, prominent biblical, biblical characters like Paul, like the disciples after Jesus rose from the dead and the actions that they took and the apostles that followed them and all these people there that we can see and even uh, more recently, like people like Corey Ten Boom, Andrew Murray, Florence Nightingale, Nate Saint, and so many more. You think about our pastor who passed away a year ago and his faithfulness to this church and to his father, to the savior all those years. I think about my dad who has been pastoring the same church for over 43 years. And you think about faithfulness. You think about these people who are considered faithful. One of the defining characteristics, a common unifying characteristic of someone we call faithful in history is one that comes from a deep and daily walk with Christ, those people from the books I've read about those people, being around those people, living with that one person, working with that other person, and seeing their faithfulness, it wasn't something they were able to turn on and off like a switch. It was something that came from a deep and daily walk with Christ, a devotion to being a follower of Jesus. He also points out the word steward, and anytime they mention a word Twice in two verses here, we might want to pay attention a little more closely. He says that we're stewards, stewards of the mystery of the gospel. And steward, simply put, is someone in ministering as an agent of another. Put yourself in, in, in that context with Scripture and Jesus and the gospel. You see, you are ministering as an agent for the Father. That you are that agent, and Jesus even told that parable about the stewards and about the three men who got some talent, some money, and two of them did great with it. The other one buried it in the backyard, and he thought he was doing well. He thought he was being safe with the money, right? He thought he was looking out for the owner of that money, but in reality, he screwed up. And in the same way, we are stewards of the mystery of the gospel, not to just take this faith and own it as our own, but actually to go out and share it and to multiply and see people come to Christ and be discipled. And so we're stewards of the mystery of the gospel. Another thing that a godly outlook on evaluation gives us is a new perspective. In verse three, we see that many times we can get consumed by judgment. Paul is saying here, with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself. He gives himself a different perspective. When we see a different form of judgment here, our anxiety level and self-worth shouldn't rise and fall on the judgments of others. Our sanity shouldn't uh, consist of those that actually like you but instead it should be reflective of our standing before God, the fact that we are bought by the blood of Jesus, children of God because of the sacrifice of his son. A godly outlook on evaluation also brings a new kind of self-evaluation, a new kind of looking at ourselves. In verse four we see this. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted, is the Lord who judges me. It's an interesting thing that Paul is saying here. He's saying that not only just because he doesn't think he did something wrong, according to the Corinthian church, just because he doesn't think he did, doesn't mean he shuts the door for the possibility of any wrongdoing. So for us, when we look at his life and see that even this man who wrote half the New Testament, over half the New Testament, can say, you know what? I might be wrong here. I'm not acquitted. I'm not like fully acquitted. There might be something that I need to work on. And so he's saying here, you know what? This is a different kind of self-evaluation. Not just stomping your foot and saying, I'm right. Not just shutting everybody down. And looking down on them in your evaluation, but instead actually seeing them, you know what? You might have a point there. (laughs) You might actually have something that I could learn from. And maybe I actually treated you like garbage in the process. Possibly. I'm just saying that for me. Maybe not you. So we think about self-evaluation. Then we move on to a godly outlook on evaluation. Opens our eyes to see things how they really are. Verse 5. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. We end up seeing things how they really are. And so having this godly outlook allows us to push pause on our reactions. It allows us to push pause and to say, Hold up, Tim. Before you say anything, before you, you know, give that snarky comment back, before you say something that you're going to regret, how about you push pause and realize that there's more going on around you than you see. He references darkness, the things going on in the darkness, and he's referring to spiritual warfare, And for you and your interactions with others, whether they're close to you or if it's coworkers or whatever it is, just strangers at the store, whatever it might be, the reality is we need to have the perspective that is actually otherworldly, that is in addition to what we see and are able then to push pause on our reactions and our evaluation and really think, you know what, maybe I need to give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they had a rough day. Maybe they're going through something I don't know that they're dealing with and push pause in our judgments to be able to say, you know what, I'm gonna love you anyway. Paul, in another uh, letter he wrote in, to the church in Ephesus, Ephesians six twelve, he states, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Paul understood that there was more going on here than just the surface stuff that the Corinthian church was dealing with. I love what he says at the end of that verse, too. He says, each one will receive his commendation from God. As I said earlier, I was looking for for commendation from everyone, my teachers, my parents, my coaches, whoever it was, pat me on the back. Tell me I did a good job. And here, Paul's saying, no, guess what? You're getting your commendation from God as you evaluate differently. And then the fifth one, the godly outlook on evaluation shows us that any authority is a gift from God. Verse six, I have applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up In favor one against the other, for who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive, and then you received it? Why do you boast as if you did not receive it? The words puffed up. It's an interesting way to put things and a graph, kind of graphic way to put things that made me think of a conversation we had in a staff meeting, just preparing for this passage. We talked through the passage leading up to Sunday. Whoever's speaking writes down notes and uh, some of us kind of joke, are you actually gonna get in the sermon or not? You know, and just So Chase, I was talking to him last week and he was giving some insight and he said, here's kind of how I look at that puffed up thing and that whole uh, outlook on this and authority. He said, oftentimes what we do we being maybe me and maybe you, is what we do is when it comes to friendship, when it comes to churches, when it comes to small group, when it comes to serving, what we do is we have this mindset of finding the right thing right finding the right person finding the right small group finding the right college ministry finding the right whatever it is place to serve finding the right church and if and if they don't li- you know if I don't like certain things about them I'm gonna go find another one right and what he said is maybe we should look at it differently maybe we should look at becoming a good friend Maybe we should start a small group and become the small group that we'd like to see. Maybe we should become the person that sits here in church and actually is involved in serving and loving others so you're becoming that person and you're modeling that to your kids if you have them. You're modeling that to the people around you so that you're not puffed up in the fact that you're finding this and evaluating others and looking down here and here and here because you have it all straight, right? But instead, you're actually working on becoming a part of the body and becoming someone who serves the body. It's a powerful difference there. The Corinthians were parading their authority around as if they earned it. It makes me think of a weird illustration. I don't know why, but some weird illustrations pop in my head all the time. But I don't say more than half of them up here. But this one was weird, and and I thought it might be a good one. Uh, And it may not be. Uh, So... I think about a baby, like a newborn baby, right? And this baby is just born. And all of a sudden, this baby gets the ability to talk. And that baby just starts talking trash and saying, look what I did. I showed up. I'm breathing, right? I got two arms, two legs, a, you know, a mouth. And they just start talking junk. And it's like, what are you doing, baby? What in the world? You did nothing to get here. And that's kind of how I picture the Corinthian church. Like they were just bragging about their authority. Like this was a gift. Your salvation is a gift. Your intellect is a gift. Your words are a gift. But yet we seem to want to brag about the things that we've done that we really didn't earn. We've recognized from James 1.17 that every good and perfect gift comes from above it puts a different perspective on any authority we might have and it brings about a distinct sense of humility. In his book, Humility, C.J. Mahaney quotes Isaiah 66 too, This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. And from this scripture he concludes that humility draws the gaze of our sovereign God. There's no faithfulness without humility. Then we're going to look at verse 8 through 13. We don't have the time to cover the entire chapter, but briefly we're going to look at the next few verses where Paul begins his own evaluation of the Corinthian church versus true apostles. So he takes the Corinthian churches and compares them to these true apostles and one of the things I thought about when I, when I read verse eight, if you want to, let's read that first. Verse eight said, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. So Paul's talking about the fact that they have what they want and they have what they need as a church. It made me think of thanksgiving I know you don't want to think about that. You know, it's just around the corner, though, even though summer just ended. And we have Thanksgiving. I asked my mom to try to find a picture. This isn't my family, but I tried to find a picture, like old school picture. My, my grandma was always taking pictures of Thanksgiving, but this one I just pulled off of Google. But it illustrates the point. Thanksgiving's coming. I don't know about you, but I experienced this little table growing up. Anybody out there experienced the kids' table? Yes, thank you. Uh, so, youngest of four, kids' table, and it wasn't like this nice one you get at like Sam's or Walmart or something like that. Mine was like this janky card table, you know, with a crappy like uh, folding chairs, you know, that type of stuff. And you thought maybe if you just bumped it the wrong way, all your food was just going to fall off. That's that's the table I grew up on. And so I was thinking about Thanksgiving and think about that coming up and uh, and. The fact that, you know, sometimes at the big table, you know, the turkey's way down the other end, and you smell it down there from the little table, and you're hoping you're going to get some scraps by the time it gets to you, right? And sometimes they take the corner on that table, and they just pass it across, and they totally forget the little table. And so in that, it made me think of my mom and my grandmom. My mom and my grandmom, even though many others, including my brother, would forget and just pass the food right by us, my mom and my grandma always looked out for us and looked out for the little ones, right, at the little table. And they said, do you have what you need, right? In this passage, in this Greek language that this is written in, in verse eight, it's actually a reference to food. It's a Greek term referring to food, and the idea that it carries with it is being satiated and satisfied, that you're full, like Thanksgiving, right? Like some of you, when you eat so much, and then you're watching the Cowboys, and you're hoping the button doesn't pop off your pants, right? That kind of satisfied. That's what Paul's referring to here, and he's saying, look, you have all you need. Even if you go back to chapter 3, verse 21, he actually says, all things are yours. It is gifted to you. You have been given all things that you need, and the problem is you're in the middle of a spiritual food coma. You have so much, and we have so much at our disposal even now, whether it is uh, online or whether it's books or, or people that give us instruction. We have so much, and it's just consuming, right? But it's consuming so much sometimes that it just puts us in a coma, like what do I do with all this? I have all this. What do I do? So Paul talks about this struggle Verse nine, he contrasts that with the feeling of satisfaction that the Corinthian church had. He details the state of the apostles as gladiators marching in a spectacle for all to see toward the end of their certain demise, even as the angels watched on. So he's comparing spiritual food coma to true apostles marching to their death, saying, let's compare these two. It follows up the same concept in verse 10, the same concept that we've seen in chapter one, chapter two, and chapter three about the foolishness of the gospel. He says we are fools for Christ's sake. In case you missed it in the first three chapters, he says it again. Some of us might argue, well, don't call me a fool. Well, guess what? Paul calls us all fools. He calls himself a fool, and it's a good thing. It is a good thing, and he says I'm a fool for Christ's sake. I don't know about you, but uh, I don't know about how you feel about sarcasm. But personally, I feel like it's a love language, but sometimes can go overboard and be sinful, okay? Paul apparently thinks it's a love language too because if you look at verse 10, it's pretty powerful what he says. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. He's saying here, you guys, and it sounds like he's lifting them up, right? It sounds like he's giving them a compliment. But the compliment he's giving them is backhanded. And the reality is what he's saying to them is the Corinth the, the city of Corinth and the people around it, you know what they're doing? They're seeing you as honorable, they're seeing you as strong, they're seeing you as kings. And you know what? The reality is you should be seen as weak, you should be seen as fools. But instead, you're fitting right in in your little spiritual food coma, right? And here you are fitting right into the society and you're seen as great. You're seen as wise, strong, and honorable instead of being fools and weak and dishonorable. And then lastly, in verse 11 through 13, Paul describes hunger, thirst, homelessness as a present situation. Look at what he says here. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. Notice how he points out laboring with his hands. Paul was known to work with his hands and earn his own living. If you looked at Corinthian society, you actually see in Corinthian society, they believed that labor, like manual labor, was only for slaves. It was reserved for only slaves. But Paul did the opposite, right? Just like he says, he was the example of the opposite. He was, in Philippians two, we see he was a man of no reputation. Paul says, and later in this passage, if you read the rest, he says, imitate me. Another way he says it, in another writing, he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And so here he is saying, when I'm reviled, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we encourage. Put yourself in that statement. Say it by name for yourself and say when Tim is reviled, he should bless. When he is persecuted, he should endure. When he's slandered, he should actually encourage those who slander him. What a tough statement. I'm really competitive and I don't like people getting one over on me, right? I don't even want this girl cut me and my boys off in Walmart in the socially distant checkout line yesterday. Just bumped her cart right in. Didn't even acknowledge we were there. And what welled up inside of me? Uh, Excuse me. It is six feet apart, but there is a line here, right? And I remembered I'm gonna preach on that the next day and uh, maybe correct my attitude, but I just wanted to say something. I wanted to confront and this idea of just getting right and being right and defending yourself and all this and Paul's saying, look, just encourage, bless. Hallelujah, you cut me off. That's tough, I'm gonna have to work to get there but it's a a challenge. So he's regarded as the most contemptible of people And when he uses these words, refuse and scum, they're words that if I use them correctly in the English language, I wouldn't be allowed on this stage again. The way he's talking here. He's actually describing the mess that's cleaned up after human sacrifices, like that mess, the nastiness, the refuse, the gross things that come out of that. That's what he's talking about right here. The apostles are treated like like garbage. And as I read that, my mind was drawn to one of the most iconic series of animated movies over the last few decades, which is Toy Story. And I thought about trash, and I thought about Toy Story, and I thought about the scene toward the end of that. Well, I can get them all mixed up, but they're about to go into the, the landfill, you know, and get burned up. But then the latest movie, Toy Story 4. And so there's arguments over Toy Story 4 and whether it should even be included, just like Rocky 4. Uh, But I love Toy Story 4 because it it incorporates all these new characters. All these people like uh, Duke Kaboom. If you haven't seen it yet, you gotta check it out. Duke Kaboom's amazing. I think I had that motorcycle growing up. Um, Then uh, Combat (laughs) Carl, you got all these different people. The creepy dolls, I don't know if you've seen Toy Story 4, but there's some creepy dolls. My wife couldn't get past, but... There's a lot of characters, but the one that I love the most uh, is one that uh, my daughter, Sydney, let me borrow. uh, It's Forky, this character right here. I don't know if anybody liked Forky out there. Forky is an amazing character. I love that you can preach a lot of sermons and use Forky as an illustration. Forky was created by Bonnie, the character who inherited all the other little toys, and Bonnie was nervous at kindergarten, first day of kindergarten, she creates Forky out of trash. You got a spork, you got some funky like plumbers, whatever that is, and then you got uh, some sticky tack with broken um, popsicle sticks, and there's Forky, right? If you know the movie, if you've seen the movie, Forky was always trying to run back to the trash. He's always trying to head back to where he started his life, right? And in this here where Paul is saying, uh, for, for illustrative purposes, like Paul is saying, look, I'm, I'm saying we're all seen as trash. We're true apostles are actually seen as something that's not really that pleasant. It's, it's foolish, Right? And oftentimes the Corinthian church, what they were looking to be was like Woody and Buzz and Jesse and all these different characters that were, were kind of had things together. They actually had shoes. They actually could walk, right? They couldn't, didn't have to be dragged around down the road, right, to get back to Bonnie. And they were all aspiring to be these people that, or these toys that other toys noticed and saw as pretty cool, but in reality Paul was asking them to be trash for the gospel. Now you can reverse this illustration and say, "Well, God didn't make us trash and I'm not trying to, you know, hurt your self-confidence and your self-esteem saying you're all trash." But what Paul is saying here is we have become refuse. We have become the scum of the world is how they were looked at, trash. And that's what he was calling them to, a humility, a service, a love, an outlook on evaluation that considered others more important than themselves. And that's what they ended up being. So for us tonight... I think there's time that we can have. We don't have a closing song, but maybe just as we pray together and close this out, maybe this can be a time where you just reflect. Reflect on how you have evaluated in the past. Reflect on maybe some sin in your life and how you treat others and what you look like according to the world. And let God do a work. Let the Holy Spirit speak to you as we pray. Dear God, dear God, We come before you challenged. I know this was convicting for me to prepare for this week. To think about how I might look to the world around me as a prideful, puffed-up person, as someone trying to make a name for himself, someone trying to look good to others. When in reality, you want us to be servants. You want us to love without anything in return. You want us to be humble, you want us to rely on you, God. Work on our hearts to convict us of this sin. Allow us to be changed, to go out this coming week to be different. And for those that may not know you, God, I pray that they will understand they can trust you tonight, embrace you as their Savior, their Lord, their King. And we thank you for the privilege we have to go out and be trash for the glory of God, that we can go out and serve and love with a heart of compassion for others. Bless those that are here. Bless those that are listening online. Allow them to do that this week. In your name we pray. Amen.